Welcome to the podcast M&A War Stories. You're joined by your hosts, Robert Heaton and Toby Tester. Each week, we walk through our experiences of M&A projects where we've been involved and we unpack the good, the bad, and the ugly. Our purpose is simply to leave you with valuable lessons that you can use in your M&A projects. And so let's not waste any more time and get this podcast underway. Toby, how are you doing today? Well, very good, Robert. It's a bit cold. We're in winter here, of course, in this part of the um, world, and it's a bit chilly, but uh, otherwise very good. But I understand that you are still down in lockdown, I think, in uh, Melbourne. Well, we are semi-lockdown. We've got a 25-kilometre radius that we can't go beyond. What happens uh, if you go beyond 25 kilometres? Is it sort of like, you know... I think a big thunderbolt comes down and sort of, you know, uh, electrocutes you, I think. So we can't do that. We've got to wear masks everywhere. So the minute you step outside your front door, and we're not going to talk any more about this, because here you are in the neighbouring state, and you're about to get on a plane and fly over the top of us to go and have a jaunt around Uluru tomorrow. Correct, correct, yes. Uh, I'll be flying way past uh, Victoria. I don't want to be past that COVID bunch. No. Yeah. Talking about things getting worse. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> so last week we finished off and we sort of jokingly said, oh, that's it. We've just found the worst acquisition and we doubted it would get any worse. And of course, yeah. you've risen to that challenge. Yeah, I did. <laughs> not not only have you found one that appears to be even worse than the one we did last week. Yeah. But you've also invoked a former colleague of mine. Well, um, that's interesting. So this yeah. one, uh, you have a bit of direct sort of, well, direct knowledge of. Because uh, after all, was in your industry. This is in your industry, uh, Rob. And you, definitely in my industry. Yeah. And, of course, uh, we're talking about Leo Apotheker, who I worked with for a number of years at uh, corporate headquarters of SAP in Germany. And Leo got elevated to the SAP board mm. briefly, and then they sacked him. All right. Um, And he disappeared for a very short space of time and then popped up as the CEO of of HP. All right. It's funny, uh, Rob. I I thought when we finished last week's podcast, I thought, well, could it get any worse? Because that was one, that was the acquisition of ABN AMRO by the Royal Bank of Scotland. And we thought, well, could it get any worse? Because that was a monumental write-down by Royal Bank of Scotland and they had to be bailed out by uh, the UK government. In a sense, this one really is an enormous disaster, M&A disaster in the making. And in actual fact, this is what I read about it. It said the acquisition of autonomy by Hewlett-Packard must go down in history as one of the worst, most value-destroying deals in the history of corporate America. Yep, and I'm not surprised with the two characters that were sitting in the big chair yes. involved in that. It's funny, Robert, because this one's actually very well documented. There's a lot of information out there because this was widely reported at the time. And should I say that the legal stoush or fallout is still continuing to this day? Oh, I'm not um, surprised. From, from, from this acquisition. Here we are like, like 10 years later and there's a continuing fallout from this still. This, this particular deal has got multiple levels of failure. Uh, and I'll, I'll let you go through those in a minute. Yes. But having been a veteran, as I, I'm often described, of the software industry, I'm just going to add my mm. to the beginning of this. Because one of the things I saw happening across the technology industry, and this probably started around about the early to mid-90s and continued through 
to, you know, mm. almost to today, was that hardware started to become a commodity. It was just box shifting. There was mm. no value in the boxes. Mm. And software companies such as SAP and Oracle, for example, were going from strength to strength. Mm. And so a lot of hardware companies, and the HP was one of them, mm. turned around overnight and said, we're going to be a software company from now on. Indeed, now, indeed. Now, there's, there's two, two things I just want to lay on the table. The first one is, if you take HP as an example, mm. I don't know how many, 40,000, 50,000 employees, mm. right? Most employees have been with HP 10 years, 15 years, some longer. Mm. They were super glued to being hardware people. It's a bit like taking a super tanker mm. and, and trying to turn it round in a, in a short space of time. Yeah. You, yeah. you can't. It's, it's, a massive, it's a massive transformation, Rob. It's absolutely huge, if not almost impossible when you've mm. got such a large percentage of your workforce yep. that are hardware people. Indeed. And the other, the other thing I'm going to say, which mm. you're going to come on to in this, mm. is that through that period, not just HP, but I would say the technology industry et al. had a number of, let's say, questionable revenue recognition practices. <laughs> which we will go on to, indeed. That, that we used to present favorable numbers to Wall Street. And therefore, through to the investors. Yes. And it was one of those behaviors that everybody knew about, but nobody talked about. It was that hidden secret. And, yeah. And, and I, know, I know you're going to pull it out with HP, but I'm going to go on record and say, having been in that industry myself for a number of years, I know that it, this isn't just particular to HP. It was, this was going on. Yeah, across yeah. the industry. Yeah. The challenge comes when you get a major transformation like HP, mm. these things suddenly rise straight to the surface and they shine like crazy. They do, yeah. And uh, But look, why don't you take us through it? Okay. Rob, have you ever seen a TV program? It's a TV series called Air Crash Investigations. <laughs> it's a fascinating series because it often talks about a, a particular aviation disaster, whether it's the two jumbo jets colliding in the Canary Islands, which is one of the worst yeah. crashes ever. And what they do is they go through all the various things that conspired to the disaster occurring. Well, this is just like air crash investigations. Yeah. There is a number of things that happened here that conspired for this to be one of the worst, if not one of the worst deals, value-destroying deals ever made in the United States. I will start telling the story, and I'll start sort of highlighting the issues as they come through. First of all, okay. let, me just, let me just get the players going. First of all, we've got Hewlett-Packard. Now, as you just explained to Rob, you know, Hewlett-Packard was essentially a hardware company in a software world just like SAP and others and Oracle that were coming along. And it wanted to, with, with Leo coming on board as a CEO, there were two things he wanted to do. One, he wanted to jettison the PC hardware business, so divest yep. themselves of that business, and then acquire a firm at the same time. Both. Big transformation, if you can imagine such a thing. And as you said, they wanted to go into high-margin software business and away from low-margin hardware. That's right. So that's a Hewlett-Packard. And we're going back now to 2010, 2011. 
Now, Autonomy, for those who don't know, has been a publicly traded company since 1998, and it specializes in uh, the analysis of large-scale, unstructured, what we know nowadays is big data. And it was a very successful business, certainly around 2010. That's about the most successful software business in the UK. It was one of the front runners of what we regularly call big data. Indeed, it was. It truly were the pioneers. They were. Yeah, so it was an amazing company doing at the time, was that was claimed, around a billion dollars in sales around 2010. Now, the whole rationale for this particular deal for HP was it wanted autonomy to be the centerpiece of a plan so it can transform itself from a computer and printer maker into a software-focused enterprise services firm, just like its rival IBM. IBM. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You see where we're going here. Yes, of course, IBM, although it came from a hardware background, IBM always had a large portion of its business in software as well. So it wasn't Indeed. as hard for IBM to make that transition. Yeah. But no doubt, Hewlett-Packard saw the writing on the wall. It had to make oh, the yeah. move. And so that was happening. So anyway, let me move along quickly to the deal itself and just explain the deal. So here we are. Let's just cast our, t- our minds back now to uh, mid-2011, because that's when Hewlett-Packard announced the acquisition of autonomy and said that they would pay $11.1 billion for this UK firm. And just for as a matter of record, that was 64% above the valuation. And this is also during a recession. Just remember, it was a recession at the time. And it was also 13 times autonomy's 2010 revenue. I know we don't want to go into this in detail, but is <laughs> there any, it's, is it's there any reason? Here, Rob, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is because you sit back and you think, who agrees to pay a 64% premium? I know. Unless, you, unless you're blinded by the bright and shiny stuff again. Indeed, indeed. We'll get onto the bright and shiny because there's a certain repeating themes, by the way, Rob, when it comes to these M&A disasters we discuss and the key lessons. Anyway, I should say that uh, on the 18th of August, this was announced. And then, would you believe, a day later, HP's share price fell by 20%. Not surprised. Shareholders hated the deal. I mean, they thought, what the hell? What are we doing? So the shareholders basically were in revolt. So much so that just a few weeks later, Leo, the apotheker, was sacked by the board. Well, as I said, Leo used to be a a former colleague with me. I worked with him at corporate headquarters at SAP. And when this actual deal was going through at HP, Almost everybody in SAP was looking at it and going, oh, there you go, there's Leo again. <laughs> <laughs> so this is literally yeah. just, just a few weeks after the deal was announced. Meg Whitman, ex-eBay CEO, yeah. was appointed. So she came on board. So anyway, in October 2011, the deal was completed and the money paid. So this is where things happen. So if it's not bad already, okay, so they clearly the shareholders across the board didn't yeah. like this deal, and immediately the board said, why do we approve this deal? Can we get out? Can we get out? Well, no, yeah. because you signed it. Now you've got to go and complete it. So the deal got completed. So day one started badly. I should say that Autonomy almost immediately started missing revenue targets. So the new CEO, Meg Whitman, sort of took a flight and other HP executives over to the UK to find out what was wrong. Well, just two weeks after that, the Autonomy CEO, Mike Lynch, was fired. 
And I should say that also at the same time, people started leaving autonomy in droves for a reason which I'll just explain in a moment. <laughs> now, just to move a bit forward, later on in that year, 2012, Hewlett-Packard, and this is the shock. Is he ready for this? Go on. The big one. They announced they're taking a nearly a $9 billion write-down against the deal. Not Remember surprised. they paid $11 billion for it? Yeah. Now, over 80% of the value of this business was written down within a year. Yeah. Uh, but it beggars belief. It beggars belief. <laughs> but, <laughs> so, you know. anyway, I want to say that Hewlett Packard did make an announcement at the time to everyone and said that basically the majority of the impairment charge, this write down, was down to, quote, serious accounting improprieties, misrepresentation, and disclosure failures, and believed that autonomy substantially overvalued at the time of the acquisition due to the misstatement of its financial performance and says that it basically it appears that there was a willful effort to inflate the underlying financial metrics of the company in order to mislead investors and potential buyers. I'm not going to ask you to go into this, but I'm just going to make a statement. Yeah. This company was performing at about a billion dollars mm. revenue. Let's say they were doing well and they were doing 20% EBITDA. You've got to be doing some absolutely very serious accounting errors for someone to come along and go, oh, look at that. I'll pay 11 times that for you. <laughs> no, no. Right? I'm calling BS, but okay. <laughs> you know, like I've said before, those practices were evident across the industry and some of them still are. Well, let me continue on because basically uh, within a year, this became a, a beginning of a major legal stoush. Now, I'll yep. explain the legal aspects of what happened next on this particular deal. But let me also just bring in the cultural aspects of this as well because I, I, I think it's worth noting that this was very interesting from a cultural view because remember the autonomy was, what kind of business it was. It was a yep. highly entrepreneurial in-your-face, aggressive sales environment. Very innovative, very entrepreneurial. Hewlett-Packard, large, bureaucratic organization. Dinosaur. Yeah, it was a dinosaur. The the hardware industry is littered with with gravestones. Deck, back in the, the, the 80s, went by the wayside. Those companies, by nature of the hardware that they built, Mm. were slow, methodical, engineering-based type businesses. And and they were extremely uh, slow-moving, process-driven, and bureaucratic. Indeed, indeed. And um, the interesting is, is that Mike Lynch, the autonomy CEO, hated his subordinate position. Now he was subordinate to Hewlett-Packard and would routinely resist at any kind of integration with Hewlett-Packard. Great. Yeah, wonderful. That's, a, that's, that's really helping the 11 billion investment, isn't it? <laughs> it is a bit. Of, so <laughs> he was not playing ball at all. <laughs> anyway, so I just want to mention all these culture clashes and some of the employees. Uh, let, me, let, me just, let me just add a point. Those culture clashes, and I can see that at the executive level, but those culture clashes would have also filtered down all the way through the entire organization. Oh, indeed. Um, indeed. You know, organizations like HP yeah. have got this ingrained culture 
I know. I, I, IBM's the same, and it's almost impossible to change it. Mm, mm. Uh, we used to joke at one time when I was in the industry, we used to say that there's a machine somewhere that clones IBM and HP people, and they all come out the other end looking and behaving the same. <laughs> so culturally, this really was not working at all well. It's funny, there's a couple of comments made in the press, and one it was felt like being waterboarded. It was one, one thing that one employee yep. said. Mm-hmm. And another employee said that when he joined a conference call, it was himself representing autonomy, and there are 52 Hewlett-Packard staff on the other, on, on the other call. Oh. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it was it was not unusual in those days for Hewlett Packard people to turn up to do a presentation to a client, and thirteen or fifteen people would turn up, <laughs> each one wanting to do their own presentation. That was not unusual. Yes. So anyway, let me return to the uh, legal stoush. I won't go into too much detail, but let's put it this way. After uh, less than a year of taking over the business autonomy, Hewlett-Packard handed documents over to the UK Sirius Ford office and to the Department of Justice. Okay, they're clearly out to blame autonomy for this, for artificially inflating the revenue before selling it to Hewlett-Packard. Now, Mike Lynch, the CEO of Autonomy, he denied any wrongdoing. And he said that everything was um, audited and really it came down to a difference in terms of accounting systems. So that's the way they do business. You know, that's the way they work, and that's the way we do the accounting. You do your accounting this particular way. And he's got a good point because any organization of that size is mm. going to go through annual audit. Mm. You know, you've got people crawling all over the books, pulling mm. up every discretion and possible error and everything else mm. uh, because the shareholders want to have satisfaction that the company is operating uh, above the board and in line with expectations. Indeed. But let me talk about that one, Rob. I'm not going to talk about that just yet, but I will talk more to that point. But let me move on quickly. I would say that uh, Mike Mike Lynch was the sort of uh, guy who doesn't take things lying down. I mean, he went straight back and said there was no fraud. And the real story is that Hewlett-Packard, after a history of failed acquisitions, botched the purchase of autonomy and destroyed the company and it was now seeking to blame others. So he was ready for a fight. Yep. And he may be writing that summary as well. (laughs) I I think it's about just about two years ago that the um, chief financial officer actually was sentenced to five years in prison of autonomy after a US jury found guilty of fraud. Yeah. And he was also fined yeah. for an extra four million. So there was whatever we said did come before a jury, and he was um, sentenced to five years in prison. I ought to say that Mike Lynch is also the United States looking for an extradition of, of himself to face charges back in the United States. And if he was to get over there, and he hasn't been extradited yet, but this is happening now, he would face potentially 25 years in prison if found guilty. Yeah. Uh, so if, if he puts a foot inside the US, he's got to get arrested. Yeah. Yeah. I should say yeah. that Mike Lynch is also counter-suing Hewlett-Packard for $160 billion for defamation loss. Yeah. yeah, and, and this will go on until all, everybody that was involved has died. <laughs> well, and there'll yeah. be a uh, search for the guilty, blame the innocent, and, you know, anyway, never mind. I carry on. Carry on. It all gets bad. It gets worse. I should say that you were talking about the auditors at the time, but the auditors were Deloitte. And uh, they audited autonomy in that time. Uh-huh. And didn't, uh, they get, didn't they get rattled they, as well? Yes, they were fined fifteen million pounds for yeah. its audit that contained serious and serial failures. 
and that was yeah. only September last year. Yep. So you can see there's been a lot of fallout from this one legally with fines, prison sentences, and extradition, which is happening still to this day. Now, I think here, Rob, you know, what, what we're here to do is to sort of say, well, look, that's what actually happened with this particular one. Yeah. It was a UK software business acquired by Hewlett Packard, paid $11 billion for it, and then less than a year afterwards wrote down $9 billion of that. 80% of its value. And you ask ourselves, well, okay, so having read all this and that sort of thing, what conclusions would we draw from this? And that's what I, I now I'm going to go into conclusions and, and then lessons learned. Okay. I think one of them is accounting practices. Now, autonomy clearly had an aggressive accounting practice and pretty much to your own experience. This is not unusual in the software business to essentially recognize revenue in a certain let me say in a very assertive way bringing bringing revenue forward into a quarter it's recognized when it's been sold rather than when it's actually delivered yeah in many cases yeah but again i'll defend the industry and i'll say that anybody with an ounce of experience in that industry mm would have known about all this. You know that there were different accounting practices. This yep. is just bloody poor due diligence, if well, anything. It, it's but it's blame culture as well. Well, yeah. Now, the interesting is, is that in the 10 quarters, 10 quarters preceding this acquisition, autonomy's revenues were within 4% of expectations. 4%? <laughs> yeah. How accurate is that? Oh. Oh, the industry's been able to do that forever. <laughs> Good to be true. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that, that should ring a bell to anybody, I would have thought, but there you go. Okay, so a bit of funny accounting, clearly. There was an element to, of deal fever here, and we've talked about deal fever before, and yep. with Leo, desperate to make a high-impact acquisition. So he, he, yep. he was out to make this. And uh, I should say that Oracle was actually looking at acquiring autonomy at the same time. And so there was that competitive pressure to, to make this deal. Yep, I've got to be 100% in agreement with you, Toby, on that one. Um, but, but please carry on. Because uh, I think we're going to talk about due diligence now. One of the biggest uh, conclusions here was it has to be due diligence. We touched on it, yeah. but here we go. Hewlett Packard was actually surprised how little um, financial details were were made during the due diligence process. So basically, it was down to financial statements and about twenty five sales contracts. That's all they had to look at. Hewlett Packard naturally wanted working papers and wanted original financial information and the underlying audit process that Autonomy had. Autonomy declined all of that, citing various corporate takeover rules as to why that could be given. So there wasn't a lot of finance information made available during the due diligence process. Now, Hewlett-Packard, I should say, they said they were reassured that, well, hey, it's a sort of public traded company. It's been audited for years. Surely, with Deloitte being the auditor, they can trust that. You can understand an element of that. You can. You can. But on a deal this size, you would still normally do very in-depth due diligence. Well, indeed. In actual fact, KPMG was contracted at the time to provide financial due diligence services, so to go into real detailed DD. But Hewlett-Packard did have a tight timetable, as always, and it was a tight timetable, and KPMG couldn't complete all the tasks they wanted to perform. 
So effectively, that got circumvented. So if I was to summarize, Rob, regarding due diligence, Hewlett-Packard was desperate to plot a new course, but they, I think, were too accepting of autonomies published and audited accounts. Yeah, yeah. In, in other words, accept it on face value, yep. get the deal done. I can see Leo in my mind's eye. <laughs> I can... <laughs> this one, this yep. one obviously has had a drama for you, Rob, because uh, definitely, you, you, definitely. You, you know the business and you're the players. I do. <laughs> <laughs> and then it comes down to unusual accounting. We talked about deal fever, talked about due diligence. The next one, I think, is to look at the board itself. And yep. the Hewlett-Packard board at the time was had a, several new members in it. And just to remember, it was also wrestling with a major divestment that was also put there. And that was the Hewlett-Packard's PC business, because that was also put on the chopping block for sale at the same time. Correct. And as Shakespeare once said, that was another fuck-up, <laughs> shall we say. Did Shakespeare say that, did he? I believe so. Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to look that one up, I think. Okay, all right. <laughs> and the other thing about the board, which I this one actually really fascinated me. The HP CFO at the time made an impassioned presentation to the board to say, don't do this deal. It is not in the interest of shareholders. And she made it such a strong presentation, she thought she was going to get sacked. Yep. According to New York Times report on this, she made an impassioned plea. But the chairman of HP wanted it. The CEO wanted the, the deal to go ahead. Yeah. Um, yep. And they ignored the CFO. And that's well, a massive red flag. You know, uh, SAP could do the same sort of thing. In many ways, the board is imbalanced. So the power's vested in two or three people. And if those two or three people get together... Mm. their collective shareholding and power on the board just overrides everything else. Yeah. yeah. So there was clearly an issue with the, with the way the board functioned at the time, and they just didn't have the bandwidth to look at the dealing too closely, and obviously too influenced by individuals and didn't listen to the CFO. Yeah. The, the final point, I think, is comes down to M&A processes themselves. Now, Hewlett-Packard clearly had a process for managing acquisitions. But according to the Wall Street Journal, the board's finance committee, which as you would normally review and approve any deal proposal before they get to the board, well, that didn't happen in this particular case. So the board's finance committee did not give pre-approval before it went to the board. Yeah. Now, I'd have to say that's a bit of a red herring because even if the finance committee had given pre-approval, what I know of the key players in this, it would have been railroaded anyway. But all the same, those processes are supposed to be there as solid checkpoints to make sure that proper governance is taking place and that proper consideration is taking place. And as we've seen through the podcast we've been doing time and time again, yeah, those processes just fall over. Yeah, yeah. So I'll just say briefly until we have a bit of discussion about what the concluding thoughts we have on this, but unusual accounting practices, I will say. We had an element deal fever, clearly yep. problems in due diligence, a board function in itself, and things didn't function as properly as it should, and some M&A process, which are critical to the whole exercise, were bypassed. And so 
when you look at back on this, Rob, and just interested in your thoughts on this one, is that, look, was this value-destroying exercise, was it due to, say, autonomy perhaps cooking the books, as claimed by Hewlett-Packard, or was it simply a gross mismanagement of the whole acquisition, both pre and post? I, I reckon it's a mix of both. Mm. Well, definitely the accounting practices at the time would have had a major impact on this deal and obviously did. But I'll go back to the fact that HP is a slow-moving, lumbering dinosaur of a company mm. and it would have found itself extremely challenged to be able to take on yeah. a deal like this and reinvent itself as a software company. Yeah. 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 And I think... Yeah, that's that's probably more closer to what too big a challenge. Yeah, so, and yeah. uh, I, I know you you previously said you think it's probably fifty fifty between autonomy and HP. Personally, I would say it's more thirty seventy. What the seventy percent Hewlett Packard mismanaging yes. the, yeah. the deal? Yeah, yeah. 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 Interesting enough, the actual methodology for determining what that impairment was for autonomy, apparently that, that wasn't disclosed or how they came up to, you know, the, down that element of the write-down, I think it was about $5 billion, was how they calculated that number. You wouldn't want to tell anybody, would you? Because how the hell can you get something that wrong? Yeah. The, the other thing I said, in, in another concluding thought, it actually took nearly a year to actually uncover these unusual accounting practices. So if you think about it, this sort of thing should have been discovered during due diligence, but it was took another nearly another 12 months for Hewlett-Packard to sort of say, hey, we've got some funny practices regarding accounting and uh, reporting revenue, but it took so long for that for them to raise the flag on this. I've got to say I don't buy it, but all the same. There you go. Um, now, conscious of our time, yeah. lessons from this one. Yeah, it's a fascinating deal, this one. So much has been written on it. If, if you're going to draw lessons from this one, and I think for any, any organization who's currently doing a deal, one of them is valuation. If there's one thing you can say is the single biggest predictor of M&A failure it is paying too much for, for, for a deal. And the thing is, is that when, you, when it's all said and done, deals have to be financially savvy to succeed. Look, let me break this down to a very simple process. I've actually been on a video call this afternoon with a corporate board hmm. talking about valuation of a potential acquisition. Hmm. Board uses a, a rule of thumb which is a multiple of EBITDA, reflect hmm. the value of the business. And then yep. they do another calculation, which is based on recurring revenue. Hmm. They're very, very simple calculations. Yep. But the overlying factor above that is that if you then do those calculations, and let's just say it values a company at, 300 million yeah if there's any requirement to pay more than that it raises red flags and alarm bells straight mm. away mm. and there has to be an in-depth and detailed analysis as to why yep. you are going to pay more than that indeed uh, indeed and, and the board have to be able to be convinced that that additional investment is worthwhile indeed indeed now, 
that that principle applies irrespective of deal size. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, companies that I, I think this is, again it comes down to the deal fever, as you as we've said, yeah. and overly aggressive CEOs wanting to make a, a name for themselves. Yeah, and compliant boards. Yeah, indeed. So valuation is key and always have a transparent, auditable valuation process and yep. avoid deals that, that basically are based purely of being strategic. Because when you say strategic deals, it, it, it creates bias, it creates impulsiveness and a certain amount of hubris. So they have to be financially savvy, financially correct and, and with through a transparent, auditable valuation process. That's the that's the key, transparent and auditable. Correct. And then there's yep. the deal fee, which we talked about before. That's I mean that's <laughs> exhibited here. Due diligence. Always have a strong financial visibility on cash and accounting process and revenue recognition. Don't place trust solely on audited accounts, particularly in the tech industry. Yep. Very much so. Yep. Governance. Have a process. Be objective. Deal with red flags. Don't circumvent the process. Yep. yep. And finally, culture. Culture issues are going to come. I mean, that's that doesn't stop a deal from going ahead or potential integration. What you've got to do is you've got to have a, di- a, a plan to manage the differences. Yes. If you walked out in the street today and you met a lovely lady, and let's say she was native Chinese, hmm. and you were agreeing to go out for dinner, you've got to have a plan of how you're going to communicate if, you, if this thing's <laughs> going to be successful. Yeah. It's the same with business. When you yeah. look at a business, it's not hard to, particularly when you've got the, this company and HP on the other side, you know, to use a, an Australian expression, blind Freddy could have seen that there was going to be a cultural clash. Yeah. So definitely that is something you've got to deal with up front and very early. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. So, look, lessons, evaluation, deal fever, due diligence, governance, and culture, the major takeaways from this one. And those are takeaways that apply to any deal that's occurring to make sure that you don't make the mistakes that were made in this particular deal. Maybe that's been a brilliant history trip for me, in a <laughs> <Is> way. <it? laughs> uh, I, I found myself from time to time through this conversation almost getting angry. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing is about these things, it does make raise your blood pressure when you read about it, because you find yourself living through it. And I've lived well, through well, it. I did. I was, inside, <laughs> I was inside these sorts of machines in, in SAP yeah. during this time period. Yeah. And so I, I not only it's a memory lane for you, it's eh, a, it, it, so, to some extent, it's a trip down memory lane. And of course, you've evoked Leo into the process as well, which I think I've got to have a scotch. Yeah, you know, the funny thing is, I find funny, Rob, is that we said, well, can it get any worse than the one we did last week? But in a sense, we it may not be quite the size in terms of sheer numbers or sheer scale, but this is a, one of the biggest MA failures, disasters in the history of corporate America. Well, I don't think I, we could probably find one that equals this, but I we've got to dig for it, Rob. I, we go and dig. You're not kidding. I, I'm, I'm actually almost tempted next week. And we'll we'll think about this and talk yeah. about it. But I'm almost tempted to go and find one now that's gone really well. A model, a model M and A transaction. 
yeah. I think, you know, we should give a break and then maybe go back onto the disasters again. What do you think? Yeah, why not? Because otherwise we might be responsible for an increase in psychiatric conditions across a lot of people <laughs> listening to our podcasts. For the doom and gloom that we're, I we're know. broadcasting. And, and, this, and the funny thing is with the doom and gloom, we shouldn't do this because whilst we should say the disasters, on the flip side, we should always remind ourselves that M&A is one of the most extraordinary ways of, of boosting an organization's growth in a way that you could never achieve organically. And there have been extraordinarily successful deals that have made that have really allowed organizations to grow and prosper. So I think oh, yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going yeah, to yeah, no, no, I'll find a good one. I, I agree. And I think you've got some, there's some good ones to choose from, I think, who have been successful. And then what yep. is their, their secret source? So what Lost is it source. about it yep. that that made it successful? Because I think that would be a great help to those listening to this. We'll, okay. we'll do one next week. Okay. Now, I'm going to, you know, see if I can stay within my 25-kilometer bubble. I'm not jealous of the fact you're going to bugger off to Uluru and swanning it around um, <laughs> Northern Territory. Okay. No, seriously. Six, uh, safe trip. Okay. Uh, enjoy it. Have a great time. And we'll talk when you get back. Okay. That'd be good. And all that leaves is that we'll be back next week with another podcast. This is Robert Heaton and Toby Tester signing off. And all we've got to do now is say bye for now. Goodbye. Goodbye.